0: Today's guest was airlifted from war-torn Saigon, Vietnam in 1975 as part of the controversial humanitarian mission, Operation Babylift. When he arrived in Australia, he was collected by his new Australian adoptive parents and raised in the eastern suburbs of Adelaide, South Australia. He has represented Australia in water sports, graduated as a school teacher. Has authored an award-winning international fitness program for primary school children, and has written two children's picture books. If that isn't enough, he's also an actor, performs stunts for television and movies. He's a mad, keen pogo stick jumper, and I've even seen footage of him water skiing on his hands. Joining us from London, England, welcome to Adopt Perspective, Barton Williams.
1: Hey, hi, Joe that um actually took
0: my breath away you have so
1: many things
2: that you've done <laughs> a jack of all trades master of none that's what we say you are and you're
1: good with your hands i did see you water skiing on your hands and you know as a mum i was freaking out but um you were safe <laughs> yeah
2: yeah just 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 cleaning them cleaning them on the water here and in, in england so yeah no it's all good it's all good
1: excellent so um so I'm at home recording this. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like five thirty mm-hmm. or six o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, it's quite early in the morning over there, isn't it?
2: Well, it's not too bad now. It's uh, what's it? Uh, Ten to nine in the morning. So, yeah. uh, what is it? where are we nine hours behind or twelve hours behind or something? No, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, right. About yeah. Nine.
1: Barton, your story is an incredible one that begins at the end of the war in Vietnam as Western troops were being evacuated out of the country and North Vietnam was marching in to take over what was then known as Saigon. Would you share your story with us?
2: Yeah, so I'm one of the very lucky uh, 300 plus babies. I was adopted out of of Saigon or Ho Ho Chi Minh. Uh, at the age of approximately 3 years of age uh, my true birth date and actual age is actually not known uh my mother my adoptive mother did have written down a so called name of my biological mother but it it was it was never really uh, valid um and since that piece of paper, literally on a piece of paper that my adoptive mum had that name, it's been lost. But even when we did have it and I did speak to mum about it, she could, she really didn't have a lot of uh, information that gave it uh, any valid uh, uh, evidence to say it was mum. My biological father's name was never, ever given. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember having a birthday change um, when I was growing up. Uh, my actual birthday is in March, but I do remember mum saying to me, I think we've got it wrong because we'd celebrated in October. <laughs> so at one year they, uh, when I was quite young, they did change it. Um, so yeah, I was adopted out. Uh, we're assuming between, you know, uh, two and a half to three years of age. I was adopted to um, a very white middle-class white Anglo-Saxon family in Adelaide, and I was blessed because they originally came from regional Broken Hill, so I had an upbringing that was a blend of city life and country life, mm-hmm. and it's definitely impacted me as an adult. Um, I was raised in Adelaide, and for those that know Adelaide or what we call Radelaide, you know you can take <laughs> the boy out you can take the boy out of Adelaide, but not the Adelaide out of the boy, and <laughs> You know, uh, growing up in Adelaide is very where I grew up in the eastern suburbs was very white, middle class. And I, I was exposed to a lot, but not as far as culture um, or ethnic diversity. I was more exposed to sporting culture and, and the arts and outdoor adventures. And hence, you know, I followed followed the path of uh, water sports and water skiing and surf life saving and acting and performance. Went to kindergarten and primary school in the very leafy suburbs of the east eastern Adelaide. Private school educated and then state school educated as well. And that was where I re- really I saw my first lot of ethnic diversity was at high school. Um, you know, I think at primary school, I think there were two other Asian kids in the whole of the primary school at that time. Wow. Um <laughs> and then went to university and studied teaching and um, Ended up became, becoming a teacher, a primary school teacher, and uh, teaching in country, South Australia and overseas, and then eventually made the big move to uh, the big smoke in Sydney, attended drama school in Sydney, and uh, I've had a real blend. Uh, I've been blessed to uh, have the upbringing that I've had, but um, along the way, there's certainly been some, uh, you know, like all all childhood and, and, and all uh, young adult life, there's been highs and lows.
1: Yeah. Martin, did your parents tell you much about what your physical condition was when you arrived in Australia?
2: Yeah, when I – I mean, as I got older, mum would share the one and only photo that she says it's from Vietnam. And even then, she's funny, my mum, she'd say – Well, we think this is from Vietnam because we were sort of told it was. So, but you look at the photo and you can't really tell. But um, I was very, very um, malnourished, uh, understandably, you know, from coming from the um, from the orphanage in in Saigon, and so much so that there's a photo of me at three, and I can't walk. I'm actually in a walker, and that sort of hits hard to me because I look at young babies and young kids and all my friends that have got kids now, and um. You know, kids are walking at 12 months, you know, and I'm like, whoa, here's me, a photo of me, you know, well over three in a walker, and I just didn't have the strength or the coordination or the, 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 the you know, the healthiness um, that a typical three-and-a-half-year-old child would have. So, yeah, I mean, um, I remember, I remember being, when, when I was quite young being, you know, not not a sick child, but um, always struggling. I was always, you know, I'm, I'm not the largest person, <laughs> and um, so I was always small. And um, yeah, I guess that's probably a, a slight reflection of of what happened from naught to three. Yeah.
1: So when you arrived, um, could you speak any English? Were you able to communicate with your parents in any way?
2: That's a really good question. Um, having spoken to mum and dad about that, uh, my adoption, you know, as an adult. They did say to me that I did, you know, rattle out some sounds. And one particular one that happened was, um, well, I still don't know the, how tr- truthful it is, but Dad said that um, there was a thunderstorm and I yelled out, um, plan, plan, plan. And he thinks I said plane. And they think it's related to a plane that crashed. Now, yeah. we don't know. We don't know the relevance of which plane, but um, whether I, yeah, I, I certainly didn't speak. Any Vietnamese that they were aware of, and my mum and dad wouldn't have had any idea what it was anyway. So, you know, had I'd be had I been able to recite any Vietnamese from my biological mother at three, my mum and dad in Australia wouldn't have had a, not had a clue what it meant anyway, and whether it was Vietnamese anyway. So, no, so um, no, I had no language, and I guess you'd say really, I had no Vietnamese culture mm. um, that 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 was reflective of my naught to three years of age prior to coming to Australia and I think that's what I find interesting as an adult is that I'm a bit of a fraud <laughs> and um you know trying to learn the language um going back to Vietnam I love the food does that you know does that make me you know part you know, Vietnamese is that the fact that I love Vietnamese food but then all my mates love it too and they're not Vietnamese so um I yeah I I don't have any language of Vietnam from Vietnam. I don't have any so called Vietnamese culture within me. So I feel a bit of a little bit of a fraud in that way. Yeah.
1: I, um, I've read uh, some things that say that um, a lot of records were lost during the war and the evacuation of the children for Operation And In fact, even on the plane that um, some of them might have had some identifying paperwork with them, but then they got mixed up and floated around in the plane. And um, so information might have been put with the wrong child then when they did land. Um, you did mention that there was a piece of paper, you think, that your mum had with your um, biological mother's details on it and that you don't have access to this now I just um as an adoptive person I'm feeling really frustrated on your behalf of not being able to get that information have um does is it something that frustrates you
2: yeah well, it does particularly because what well, I'm now 47 and seven years ago I went back to Vietnam with my partner and a friend from school who happened to be from the same orphanage which we just Bizarrely, in a bizarre way, we we realised we we're in the same orphanage, and we pledged that we'd go back when I turned forty. So we went to Vietnam, and I was living with that hope for about two weeks. That uh, I spoke to Mum to say, "Look, I'm going back to Vietnam, and whether she, you know, she, can she remember where that piece of paper was? She 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 has no idea where it is. I'm sure, it, you know, somewhere it's somewhere in her house. So I remember going back uh, and getting. Excited, going back to the orphanage. Unfortunately, when we got to the orphanage, they they asked whether we had money or fruit. It was it was an expectation as a foreigner coming back, and as a former uh, uh, refugee baby in the in the orphanage, was to pay some money or pay some fruit. Um, to walk around an empty orphanage. And it was a real anti climax, I must admit. Um, one, we realized the level of corruption that potentially went on, or the level of, I should say, um, in fairness to the staff that would have worked in those orphanages in those time, uh, the, the, how chaotic it would have been. I mean, the paperwork would have not been up to what it is now. The processing of, of, of uh, adopted babies would have been just so much different. Um, so, and the conditions, and we walked around this uh, this orphanage, so-called orphanage, which basically looked like a, an empty warehouse. Um, and there was one one orphan's still there. She hasn't left and she's, you know, she's quite old now. Um, and she was walking around the distant uh, distance. And uh, it's now used as accommodation for university students or high school students. Very cheap, I might add, because it's not the the, the the cleanest of places. And obviously, there's still this one orphan that's there. She's, she lives there permanently. but um, And the orphanage has since changed uh, uh, hands of ownership. The original people that own it don't own it anymore, and hence they're probably capitalising on the fact that people are coming back to visit, so hence the fruit or money. Um, but we were really disappointed. Uh, Sally and I sat there and um, uh, my friend Sally. Sally. Uh, that was in the same orf- or- orphanage, and we sat there and just listened to stories saying, Here's where the babies were in boxes, here's where the babies went out. Um, and we asked, Are there any records that we could look at? We were hoping that m- might, might have been a day book or something or mm. some form of rec- record recording, but no, he and he, um, I'm sure there was, but where that is now, I don't know because he certainly uh, he was a relative of the original owners and um, he. He, ha- he couldn't give us any information which so that was a real disappointment but it sort of reinforced the fact that the paperwork that went to the babies and to the parents to the adoptive parents wasn't always up to scratch and I, I don't blame anyone I mean it's it's I think it's indicative of the time and what was going on and I mean it would have been chaotic um the 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 rooms were just you know you you see the photos uh the old photos of boxes of babies lined up and i tell you what that's exactly there would have been no room i mean there's this it's um it's quite daunting but at the same time it's sort of that's what it is and and that's what it was and um i've learned to just accept and and i think that's one thing that sally and i come away from that orphanage going okay well that's where we that's where we started and then we got freighted to australia you know like a fedex parcel you know so um yeah we were the lucky ones, you know, we were the lucky ones. And um, we sort of realized that when we walked the streets of Vietnam, because um, there's so much hidden poverty and there's obviously the scars of, of the war uh, everywhere you go in Ho Chi Minh. And uh, so, yeah, we we, we were the so-called lucky ones. And I think in some ways, the Vietnamese locals, the older ones, especially almost resented us a bit for that with the way that when you'd speak to them and they'd go, Oh, you're from Australia. You're, you, you, you One lady said to me, um, "You're from the uh, uh, the wealthy country or the, the rich country." And I thought, mm. "Whoa, well, she's, she's she's probably spot on there, you know." So, had we stayed and been raised in Vietnam and run the risk of being injured or killed in in during a war, um, but then under the regime of what they've had to go through, so yeah, it's the unknown.
0: Yeah,
1: that it's kind of like a sliding door, isn't it? Um,
2: Absolutely. Yep. What
1: could have happened? What was it like for you growing up in Adelaide?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was, I was uh, very blessed to be raised in a very nice area of, of Adelaide and the, the eastern leafy suburbs. So I was exposed to. Everything, my parents, my adoptive parents just gave me everything. And when I, when I mean everything, I mean this exposure to everything. I pretty much played every sport. Um, I played a lot of water sports. And I think growing up was, I got used to being the odd one out. And in a, in a way, I always felt like I was like, oh, who's he? He, he? I just stood out a bit. I mean, traditionally growing up in the 80s, I, was, uh, I remember joining um, life-saving, uh, life-saving nippers at Glenelg Surf Life-Saving Club. And it wasn't racism back then. Well, I don't think it was. But it was just the fact that I stood out, you know. Here's me, you know, a little short, black, straight-haired uh, uh, Vietnamese orphan with white Anglo-Saxon parents taking me to a surf life-saving meeting where all the kids were pretty much blonde and blue eyed, and I remember uh, distinctly a mate of mine uh, that I met very early in the piece when I was like eight years of age. His name was Zach, and he's blonde, blue eyed. His whole family were blonde and blue eyed, and it was cool because it was, we were in the surf club. You know, we all there was yeah. I, I um I don't believe I ever experienced any race direct racism at the surf club. When I was younger, but I, I did feel that I was a, you know, uh, a fish out of water because I did. I physically looked different to everyone else. So, growing, I, I got used to that. Um, and then I got involved in water skiing and then the arts. and And I've always felt that I just, I just stood out a lot until I went to high school. Um, because at primary school there were there wasn't a lot of ethnic diversity, and there was I think two or three other people that were. Asian in our primary school. Um, high school, there was a greater percentage. Um, I went to a very good private school in Adelaide and a very good state school. And there was a lot of ethnic diversity in the in high school um, and then obviously university uh, even more. So um, it was only as an adult that I expo- was exposed to racism in Adelaide. And, um, yeah, it was the usual, you know, go back to your own country, which, you know, it's quite ironic that, you know, 30, 40 years later, people are still saying the same thing, and like, I guess it's just indicative of, of the men- mentality of some people that you know like to abuse people from different ethnic backgrounds. But they're still yeah. saying the same thing. So you know, I remember distinctly getting that. You know, like. Yeah. You know, uh, oh, that's a lie. Uh, high school, I did. I remember getting called a a nip, um,
1: yeah,
2: uh, a nipper, which I didn't really understand. And uh, occasionally, someone would say, "Oh, you yellow head," and top deck. That's right. Top deck was one that I did. I did receive a bit because my parents were a different color to me, so-called you know I was yellow and yeah, so uh, there's a little bit, but it was it was always just names. I never got that blatant racism that I got as an adult where it was directly to your face. It was all yeah, um, uh, yeah it was indirect what I call indirect racism uh, where someone would make a smart comment. Or they'd say, you know, uh, take up karate or, you know. And that was the irony is that I was really good at water sports and not very good at martial arts. And as I got older as an adult, I remember my sensei uh, was into water skiing and he found out that I was a better water skier than what I was at martial arts. So that was quite <laughs> funny. Uh, and I was Asian. <laughs> I am Asian. And he's white anglo Saxon and he's the master at martial arts. So we had a chuckle over that. So <laughs> it was always just that that funny being the odd one out a little bit you know standing out so it was more standing out growing up that i had to get used to
1: yeah i um i can see that storytelling has been really important in your life and i watched a short film that was made by the australian film television and radio school about your life story which we'll put a link up in our podcast notes so that people can have a look it was really compelling viewing and you've since written two books children's uh, children's book called um but what are you based on your experiences growing up can you tell us um you know why you've written those books and why it's been important to you to tell your story
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're spot on, Joe. I do love telling a story. And the the decision to write uh, But What Are You? Um, is twofold. It's a, it's a twofold decision. One is I want to share the adoption story and raise the awareness of adoption. But two, I, as, a, as an educator, as a you know a former full-time primary school teacher, I felt an obligation to socially educate people as well. Um, so I really love the fact that I could talk about resilience and anti-bullying and validation. I think, I think what I, I really have tried to do with this kid's book but what are you is to get it to resonate with people that have been adopted, know someone that's adopted or don't. And I think that's what we're trying to do, a sense of curiosity. And that's, you know, I think that's my education hat on there, trying to, you know, tell a kid, simple kid's story, but raise awareness and also go, oh, yeah, okay, that's what it's like. So you're saying to me that he felt left out. Oh, I felt left out before, and, and that's, uh, that's the feedback I get from kids directly. You know, kids when they, they they can relate to it, and kids are you know, you know, blatantly honest with this sort of stuff. So, yeah, uh, it's everything in the story is verbatim. Um, where the little boy uh, Gung, which is obviously autobiographical, it's me as a child. He gets harassed at a milk bar, which we don't know is actually in Broken Hill, and the milk bar still exists. And that's exactly verbatim. I got hassled by three boys. My my, my adoptive brother, my brother Hayden, was there to, to save me. So um everything that's taken place in, in, in But What Are You is pretty much verbatim. Um but there's a beautiful sense of belonging to your adoptive family and that's that's you know, we that's what family are. The people that raise you, um, that install the values, um, your morals, that's that's your family, and that's what I think we've got. Ac- we've got across in this book is mm. the fact that um, you know my adoptive family—they're they're the ones that are, you know, they're my family, my new family. I think what's confronting though is the fact that you know on the front cover is that um, it, there's you know a picture of boxes with babies in it in an aeroplane, and I always ask kids when I do author reads at schools. So I ask the kids, you know, what's this book about, and. You know it's it's amazing to hear what kids say. you know they you know think, um you know, is it uh, a cargo, you know is it cargo, this you know precious cargo in the box, and they're they're pretty well spot on. so yeah, yeah it's a, it is it is interesting.
1: I know you had a little bit of resistance to that front cover, which I think is absolutely perfect. Um, and you you still yeah. ground on using that.
2: Yeah, so what happened is my publisher uh, over here in the UK said to me, they sent me the proof of the front cover and it was actually uh, as a picture of me or Gung, the character. And I was like, why are we using that? I just said straight up, I said, like, well, you know, here's the picture I'd love to have. Can we, can we use the, the the boxes? And they were like, they sent me an email back saying, are you sure you want to use that? And I said, yeah. I said, you know, one we it's a kid's book and we want to create interest for kids. And I'm sure there's thousands of books with, with, people on the front cover of kids books but I don't think there's too many kids books with boxes of, with babies on an airplane so yeah. that's what won and the, yeah they did the eventually they said yeah no worries all right we'll go with it so yeah it was a it was an interesting time.
1: I'm, I'm glad you stood your ground because I think it's a perfect and really interesting cover and something that's going to make kids want to ask questions straight away.
2: Yeah, I mean look it, yeah, I, I sort of I, I get what they're trying to say, you know, it's a kids' book it's gonna be happy and it's, it's a happy story and but I'm like no 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 this is this is this is what actually happened. Operation Baby Lift. They put cardboard boxes on planes and flew them like parcels to, to Australia and and I'm very fortunate. So yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a great story. It's a great story.
1: So I find it really interesting that you've acted on and off since you're a child. And acting, as I see it, is a lot like pulling on another identity and adapting to it and interpreting interpreting it for others, which I think is a lot like the experience of an adopted person. And it's probably magnified when you have cross-cultural um, issues as well. Do you think that the adoption experience either led you to acting or helps you when you're doing it?
2: Whoa, yeah, no one's ever asked me that question. Um, I think it's helped in the sense that insecurities, I, I think I'm really about it, I can really relate to a character that's got insecurities or a sense, dealing with a sense of adversity. Adversity. I think it's, it's certainly helped um, storytell, definitely. Um, and as actors, we are storytellers. but. Jumping into it with the skin of someone else, that's a really interesting analogy because you're spot on. We do do that. Whether it's helped, I don't know. I think maybe I've always felt I don't really quite fit in. I, I, you know, every now and then you get reminded that I just don't really fit in. Like I can't speak the language and someone sees me and, you know, they're sort of, you know, I see someone on set or or I'll go for a casting and they'll say, oh, yeah, so you're Australian, but, but but where are you from? And like, oh, I'm from Vietnam. Ah, oh, so can you speak it, or, or worse, they'll they'll show off their their um their skill of speaking Vietnamese to you, and, I'll, uh. and I'll, I can't speak Vietnamese. So 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 sometimes I get I get caught. Um, so to uh, to say whether it's helped, I'm not sure it's helped. I think it's helped in the complexities of understanding someone going through adversity. I think it's helped in the pool being challenged. Yeah, 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 and. Yeah, so I, it's it. Uh, yeah, I think it's helped in some respects, definitely. But um, maybe from a culture point of view, it probably hasn't helped for acting for roles that are non-English speaking. I have played a police officer, a Thai police officer, but again, I, I'm uh, yeah. Sometimes I can jump into that skin of that character. Sometimes it doesn't really help.
1: Yeah. So um, I was just wanting to ask you a little bit more about um you've been back to Vietnam to try and um connect with your roots and and find your um biological parents and it wasn't successful at that time have you got any plans to do anything else to try and and find those roots and and connect
2: Um, In the short term, uh, being based in London, no. But um, we definitely want to return to Vietnam and and visit Vietnam again. Um, I would definitely like to do some research into finding out more about my mother's name um, and possible relatives. So that in the short term, yeah, you know, I'm hoping that um, mum can um, find uh, my biological mother's name or whether I can contact an agency to find out. I'm sure... I'm sure within the ASIO that we're heavily involved in helping bring the orphans to Australia. I'm sure I can find out who my- um. Yeah. So chasing that up, yes, and just visiting Vietnam as, as a tourist. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful country and we do like going there. So I uh, haven't only been there once, but we have, you know, we have pledged that we'd go back again. But more so just chasing up who my mother is would be fantastic. Um, if the opportunity comes to meet rel- relatives, that would be great too. But I think it would have to be done remotely at the stage, obviously being based in London, and the internet is a great resource to do that. So, yeah, yeah no, f- fingers crossed. We can do something um, in the next few years. That would be great.
1: Well, I hope you um, keep us in, in touch with um, how things go, if you have any successes with that, because we'd love to hear about it. Um, we've been getting a little bit of feedback as we've been trying to record this, we've cut in and out a few times, so we might take this point to, um, say goodbye and thank you so much for joining us on Adopt Perspective, Button.
2: Absolute pleasure, Joe. Thank you for having me and, uh, yeah, I'll definitely keep you updated and, uh, we, uh, if we're hoping to work on a play, a, a, a play here in London based on but what Are, But What Are You as an adult play so uh if and when that gets uh, developed we'll uh, certainly keep in the loop as well because i'm sure your audiences would would resonate from that
1: yeah absolutely do let us know
0: thanks barton
2: will do thanks joe
0: thanks for listening to the adopt perspective podcast if you'd like to find out more go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll free 1800 210313. Or you can call Jigsaw on 07 3358 666. If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption.